We're going to continue our study of 1 Samuel in chapter 15. But I do want to warn you in advance, this is not going to be a consumer-friendly sermon. If I preached topical sermons, I would never preach this chapter. But because I'm preaching through a book, I have to. So here we go. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I want to be clear. God just told Saul to kill babies. Man and woman, child and infant, forget the animals. God commands Saul to erase the memory of an entire group of people. And that's exactly what God said He would do in Exodus 17 when Amalek attacked Israel in the wilderness. God said then, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Listen to what Moses said about Amalek in Deuteronomy 25. There's Exodus 17. Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. And cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore... When the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Saul is being given a chance to fulfill that prophecy. And the only reason that it seems cruel to us is because we fundamentally misunderstand the nature of sin and the nature of God. No one on the earth is born innocent. If babies are innocent, then God is here guilty of great evil. These people... 
young and old, were not being punished because they were Amalekites, but because they were sinners. This judgment is a picture of what all humanity deserves from God, just as the salvation of Israel was a picture of God's grace, which means His undeserved favor. Psalm 9, verse 5. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. And that is what fairness looks like according to God. This is what we deserve because we are the nations. And the rest of the Bible makes no sense at all if we ignore the part about judgment. If we try to minimize the judgment of God. If we think of Him as safe or as timid about our sin, then we've also minimized our sin. And that's exactly what Saul does next. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So notice that Saul kills all the men, all the women, all the children, and all the babies. He wipes out the entire nation, but he spares the king, And he keeps the best animals, which to me sounds like um, a 21st century ethic when the babies have less value than the animals. Notice they seem to be included in all that was despised and worthless. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king for... He has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel. Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Notice the disconnect between what God thinks of Saul and what Saul thinks of Saul. Saul is proud of himself. So proud that he sets up his own monument. Look what I did, everybody. But God sees this as a failure. Because partial obedience is not obedience. 
And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So he says, Saul, if you really did what you were told, then why do I still hear animals? Shouldn't they all be dead? The rest of the chapter is an argument between Samuel and Saul. And I want us to pay close attention to all the ways that Saul tries to defend himself. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Tim Chester in his commentary identifies five excuses that Saul is going to make for his sin. And here's the first one. Excuse number one. He says, it would be a shame to let all these animals go to waste. In other words, we decided that this makes more sense than what God asked us to do. Now, I know God wants me to trust Him, but this just doesn't make any sense, Samuel. Why would God plan this for us? Why would He ask this of me? So this is a heart that says, I know better than God does. Why does God ask us to do hard things? Why does He ask us to do hard things? Things like giving up our time and resources for other people. Or honoring the Bible's sexual ethics. Or staying in a difficult marriage. Or passing through a difficult trial. Why does God sometimes ask His children to go to dangerous places for the sake of the gospel where some of them will die violent deaths? Why does God ask that of His people? Saul's excuse demonstrates a heart that thinks it knows better than God. Verse 16. Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? So God asked Saul more directly, Why didn't you obey? And then he takes it a step further. Why did you do evil? He says it that way because failure to obey God is evil. It is not just a mistake. 
But Saul argues that point. Verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king of Amalek and I've devoted the Amaleks to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So we find here three more excuses. Number two, Samuel, let's focus on what I did right. I mean, I know I didn't obey perfectly, but I did a pretty good job. And I think this is the easiest excuse to make, right? It's the the low-hanging fruit of excuses. Everyone on the planet can find someone worse than themselves. At least I'm not that bad. I mean, God, everybody makes mistakes, but look at all the good I've done. Trying to be a good person here. And that count for something? This is a heart that says, I'm a better person than God thinks I am. Excuse number three is also common. He says, look, Samuel, everybody else is guilty too. It's not just me, right? The people took. We did this. Not just me. So let's let's spread the guilt around here, okay? Everyone else is doing it, God. So it can't be that bad. This is a heart that says, I'm a better judge of character than God is. Excuse number four. This is my favorite. Well, we did the wrong thing, but we did it for the right reasons. We did it for you, God. We plan to use these animals for worship. In other words, don't our motives count for something? We had good intentions. And this is a heart that says, I know what God wants for me better than God does. I hope you're beginning to see how deceptive sin can be. How easy it is to make excuses for what we choose to do and not do. We always have a reason. Everybody does. Look at how Samuel responds. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. And notice how Samuel attacks the excuses. Do you really think God wants your worship 
more than your obedience. He cuts to the heart and he tells Saul exactly what he's guilty of. He says, rebellion is as the sin of divination. Okay, divination is fortune telling. It literally means to see with the eyes of a God. So what Samuel's saying is, your choice, Saul, to follow your heart instead of following God was rebellion. You're putting yourself in the place of God as if you can see things the way God does. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. In other words, it was wicked of you, Saul, to assume that you know better than God. And this is, this is what we do. You remember the statement of the armor bearer last week to Jonathan? <clears throat> he said, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you heart and soul. And Samuel is now telling Saul, Saul, you did what was in your heart to do. You did what you wanted to do, and now you're trying to mask it behind fake religious zeal. Man, if that doesn't sound like a lot of American Christianity. I'm going to do what I want every day, but I'll show up on Sunday and wash it all clean. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Saul apologizes and this sounds like a sincere apology, but buried inside this apology are two problems. The first problem is that Saul is actually making another excuse. Notice he says, I feared the people. And there's that word fear again. For three weeks in a row now, we've seen it. It has to be an important theme. And here Saul uses it as an excuse or at least an explanation for his sin. He says, I know I did the wrong thing, but you've got to understand, I was overcome with fear. What would the people think if I did this? Which tells us that Saul's desire to be viewed as a good king mattered more than God's approval. This is a heart that says, your opinion of me matters more than God's opinion of me. That's the first problem. But we see it also in the second problem. The second problem is that Saul's words do not match his actions. In the very next breath, after he admits his fear of people, he asks Samuel, to pardon his sin and return with him in a demonstration of worship. 
And this is a problem because he's asking for public pardon from Samuel rather than private pardon from God. And Samuel sees right through it. Verse 26. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And that's the final verdict. Verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. When we started the book of Samuel, I told you that a major theme in the book is glory. And if you remember, I told you that a man's robes were a demonstration of his glory. Okay? The bigger, the fancier the robes, the more important the person. So when Saul tears the robe of Samuel, it makes a perfect illustration. Picture Saul reaching out in a last desperate attempt to try to control the situation. And God uses that to confirm his control of the situation. Because you see, the kingdom never belonged to Saul. It was never his to control. And next week we're going to find out about this mysterious neighbor who is better than Saul. But there's one hopeful statement here, okay? Verse 29 says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, Samuel says, We may change, but God does not. He is consistent. But if you are paying attention, what do we do with verse 11? Do you remember verse 11? What did God say? He said, I regret that I have made Saul king. Do you remember that? That was God speaking to Samuel. And guess what? We didn't read it, but at the end of chapter 15, God says it again. I regret that I have made Saul king. Isn't that interesting? Because twice in verse 29, Samuel says, God does not have regrets. And it is the exact same Hebrew word I checked. Now, listen, guys, if humans made this up, then that's a pretty bad mistake. Because it seems like a really obvious contradiction in the same chapter. But I want to convince you that it's not a contradiction. In fact, I agree with Ralph Davis who reads this as a brilliantly written paradox. 
an intentional statement. Not a mistake. It's an intentional paradox. And it's actually, I think, a window into the heart of God. Let me explain. Davis actually says it like this. He says, this God who both regrets and does not regret is the only God we can serve. Only in the consistent God of verse 29 and in the sorrowful God of verse 35 do we find the God worthy of praise. Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. And it's not just here. The reason this makes sense to me is because it is the same heart of God that we find in the gospel. A God who is both just and loving at the same time. He is both able to punish sin and pardon sin because Jesus became both the just and the justifier. Saul, the chosen king, is rejected by God. And one day Jesus, the chosen king, will be rejected by men, hung on a cross, but also ultimately rejected by the Father in our place. You see the beauty of that paradox? How can God say to us, I will not let the guilty be unpunished. And yet I will forgive sin. That's impossible. Except in Christ. Which means for us, the only path of no regret is repentance and faith. It is the path through Jesus, with Jesus, in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through Him. And one final note. Remember when God said, this was the hard part at the beginning of the sermon, some of you still aren't over it. It's tough, right? It's not an easy thing to hear. God said, kill babies. Remember when God said that He wanted to, quote, blot out His enemies, erasing their memory from the earth. That phrase, to blot out, it only occurs, to my knowledge, twice in the New Testament. Once when Peter preaches in Acts 3, and again in Revelation 3, in the letters to the church at Sardis. Look at what's said. Peter says, Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And Jesus says to Sardis, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will, quote, Never blot His name out of the book of life. Brothers and sisters, we were the enemies of God. 
deserving of having our memory erased from the earth. But thanks be to God in Christ that the memory of our sins have been erased instead. And our names will never be erased. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are so many who are unsure about the faith. There are so many who are walking away from the faith or have already done so and they even have a fancy name for it. They call it deconstructing. But all they really mean by that is that you, O God, God, are not who they want you to be. They don't see you as enough. And we are all somewhat guilty of this. And so I pray that you would lead us to repentance. Would you convict us of our excuses and our rebellion? Would you help us to return to you with empty hands? and empty hearts to receive and to rest in the work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.